So we're, we're inviting you to join Blue Ocean Faith for uh, 2018. You may know that we have a one-year renewable approach to membership in our church. You join is simply by filling out a member letter. We have those on the back table and all of us do this. I'll be going for 2018 myself and filling out one of these letters or you can, um, we have like an online version of this which you get through our weekly update. If you're not getting our weekly updates, you can get them by uh, filling out that little sheet that you have with you and with your, if your email is legible, we'll send it to you. If, if you want to get the updates and it hasn't happened yet, uh, see me and we'll make sure to get you hooked up properly. Um, also, there's a membership booklet in paper form on that, on that uh, table if you prefer your information like this rather than the online file that you get to the weekly update, you can as well. Um, membership just means you sign up to serve as you're able, you come as you're able, you give as you're able, and um, we want you to join. I'm, uh, here's why I want as many people as possible to join this church, okay? Um, this is not the whole sermon, this is my preface. Um, I think it's not being grandiose to say that the world needs more churches like the kind of church we are. Um, it's not that common for a church uh, to be in a position to be a part of affecting a big change on the faith landscape. Um, and we have stumbled into that, into that position as a, as a church just by our history. Um, you know, as, as Jesus followers, um, we're about way more than LGBT inclusion, um, but God has given us a big opportunity in that arena to change the landscape. Um, and that means to reduce the suffering for LGBTQ people. Um, you know, we don't change our, change the landscape opportunities. I've been in the, you know, the God business for a long time, and these are like once in a lifetime opportunities and not everyone gets them like history throws them at us and we either take a swing at them or we uh, stand there like the house by the side of the road to quote the wonderful beloved memory of Ernie Harwell so here's the current landscape uh, that we're situated on uh, the four largest faith traditions in the United States um, happen to be Christian and they are uh, in order of size Roman Catholicism evangelicalism are kind of almost tied for uh, in terms of numbers mainline Protestants our Episcopal friends over here our hosts our mainline Protestant church uh, and the historically African American churches the National Baptist Association uh, the AME Church etc um, the Catholic and evangelical church worlds actively discriminate against LGBT people, just to, just to put it straight, uh, as do the vast majority of the um, black churches, historic black churches and the Pentecostal black churches. That leaves the only slice that as a large group is open to LGBTQ inclusion are the mainline churches. The largest mainline church is the United Methodist Church. State in Huron is a, a big one. They oppose by policy full equality for LGBTQ people. That's just the reality. Uh, the Episcopal Church, our hosts, uh, PCUSA, that's the first Presbyterian church across the uh, street from, you know, what is it, Washington, South U. 
Um, the ELCA, you don't need to know what all these things won't be on a test. The UCC, they all have national policies to support equality, but it actually is a minority of those parishes or local congregations that have implemented those policies. So typical story, uh, my wife Julia is an Episcopal priest and I, we went to um, a, a church of one of her friends, an Episcopal church recently to do a dog and pony on LGBTQ. And the national policies in the Episcopal church are great, but our session was the first time that parish had addressed the issue openly since they voted unanimously as a, as a parish in 2003 to condemn the installation of a gay bishop which kind of sent a signal to any gay members who might have been there but not so open. Uh, before that, the long-gone priest publicly outed his uh, assistant from the pulpit. That's a power move, isn't it? That's like a don't you dare come out if you're gay and in this church. And things like that in local congregations um, are not uncommon and they send a chilling message. So. The other thing is most of the inclusive churches, and we're just talking about a slice of one slice of the landscape, are not good at spreading inclusion around, you know, to other churches. We're late to the party compared to them, but we're pretty good at spreading the party. That's like our little gift. Um, next year, you know, we'll probably be leading a cohort of PCUSA pastors who want to go for it in their local congregation. Emily's in constant contact with people around the country about this, helping them along. Well, Andy, our seminarian, is, is going to multiply this and as he gets rolling. Steve Gray has connections to his uh, law work in Namibia. And now there's a group of Namibians who are cheering us on and working for inclusion in their faith communities and it's a big deal there as it is here. Uh, many of you tell me about telling your friends and your and your family members about our church and that just opens up conversations about the topic and it's part of the process of the spirit changing people's hearts and that's awesome. So we're sitting here with this huge field of opportunity before us um, and without apology I want to say if this is in your heart if you care about this lend a hand and the way to do it is to join us um, be part of the change now this happens without a church and churches don't happen without committed members so our the series that we're doing for this um, this uh, series this renewal series is um, based on the book uh, braving the wilderness by Brene Brown if you have a social work background you're like you're really into Brene Brown, the subtitle says it all, the quest for true belonging and the courage to stand alone. In order to belong to groups, we have to um, develop the courage to stand alone in groups. It, it sounds kind of um, counterintuitive, but it's a key to actually having authentic belonging in our groups, the ability to like differentiate and to stand alone within the groups that we're part of. Um, you know, this last week we talked about Jesus in the wilderness. He's kind of like the paradigm for this. In the wilderness, Jesus was wrestling with his demons. He was listening uh, for the Spirit. And that wrestling process uh, that for him took place over six weeks, for us takes place over years, uh, is what gave him what he needed to stand alone in the work that he was called to do. So 
we want to um, begin this um, second session with a story from Corey, who has been a supporter of Blue Ocean Faith from the beginning. So Corey told me a fabulous story uh, this week at lunch, and I want him to tell you the same story. Corey, come on up here. Give it up for Corey. Yes, you have to stand right up here. Right up there? Yes, you do. Okay. So people can see you. It works a little bit better. There you go. That was not a good idea. Uh, so hi, my name is Corey, um, and I hate Fox News. Uh, that's kind of a weird place to start an introduction, but it's integral to the story, so I thought I'd set the tone there. Um, so this week, Ken and I were talking about um, my grandfather, who passed away this summer. Uh, and I told him a story about a particular interaction that I had with him, and that's what Ken wanted me to share with you. Um, I've been struggling about uh, just how much backstory you guys need to understand it, but uh, I will. Uh, I think I've come down to uh, the following uh, points. So um, I grew up in white, uh, conservative, Republican, evangelical suburbia, um, and God's brought me to a point now where I have a. Uh, prophetic burden of being keenly aware of the idolatries of that culture. Um, I am one of the many millennials uh, who boomeranged back home during the Great Recession. Um, and so uh, for the last nine years, I've been living with my Fox News addicted father. Um, so he has it on constantly, um, literally like three quarters of the time if he's home, it's on. Uh, he DVRs his favorite shows. Uh, he has a conversational relationship with Fox News. Um, he talks to the television, regardless of whether or not anyone else is in the room. Um, and um, despite the fact uh, that um, I, I have the burning anger that I have uh, towards uh, that culture, um, it's not something my family has, uh, that I've talked a lot about with, with my family. Um, because as strong as the anger is, the fear is stronger, usually. Um, so last uh, spring, I think it was, uh, during the presidential primaries, um, I had gone over to see my grandfather. Uh, I got his groceries every week for him. Uh, and uh, because of politics being in the news and everything, uh, he has gotten into the habit of, of watching Fox News uh, to keep up on everything. Um, so, as was my habit, as soon as I walked in, I grabbed the remote and muted it. Um, it wouldn't matter what was on, because he listened at maxed volume, and it just wouldn't work, even if it was the Hallmark Channel, which uh, was the other possibility. Um, so, um, got his grocery list, went over it with him, went grocery shopping, came back, Fox News was back on, full blast, muted it, started unpacking, and... Um, he had something he wanted to tell me. Uh, I'm honestly not sure exactly what it was. It was something that Fox News had said about Hillary Clinton that he just had a burning desire to, to tell me. And I lost it. Um, just let him have it. Um, just the words came pouring forth um, about how uh, I didn't want to talk politics with him and that everything that he hears on Fox News is a lie and that the purpose of Fox News is to make you angry and afraid. Um, 
He didn't get the full version of my Fox News rant, uh, which would have included the word satanic and pornography, um, but he got a good portion of it. Um, so I drove home after pushing away the groceries and calmed down slightly and called him up and apologized for yelling at him, uh, which he accepted. Uh, he also tried to claim that he hadn't wanted to talk politics with me. Um, that somehow whatever it is that he had to tell me wasn't political, which I didn't quite understand. Um, and the, the weirdest thing about all of it to me was that it made an impact. Um, it really um, changed things. I never saw him have Fox News on again uh, for the, the next year of his life. Um, I don't know if he was watching it when I wasn't around, but he didn't always know when I was coming. Um, Later that same week, he had a really long conversation with my mom about it, I guess, um, just how surprised he had been uh, by my vehemence. Um, but yeah, that's the story. Yeah, thank you for it. is the message of chapter four, which is the title of our, uh, of our presentation today. It's called, People Are Hard to Hate Close Up, Move In. So um, I'm just gonna make commentary on Corey's story to kind of illustrate what uh, Brene Brown is talking about in that chapter. In, in the Jewish tradition, um, Corey's interaction with his dad would, or grandpa would be like a prophetic moment. Um, the kind, the way he used language about it, even though he, the way he described Fox News was like a Hebrew prophet would describe it. You know, he's not trying to make fine distinctions. Well, not everything that's said is actually a lie and all that sort of thing, but it's prophetic um, kind of communication that comes out of a, a kind of a passionate heart. Um, Corey wasn't planning this conversation with his grandpa, um, but he'd been stewing on the concern for a long time. As the Hebrew prophets, they stewed on things that weren't working right in Israel for a long time and then the Spirit would impel them at moments to speak and the Spirit moved Corey, I think, to speak in this interaction with his grandpa. Um, the Spirit is depicted in the New Testament by two primary uh, images. One is fire and the other is a dove. And so both are at work here, right? Um, the fire is obvious. He was angry at what grandpa's media diet was going, doing to this man that he loved. And the love erupted in the anger. So, you know, anger can often channel hate, but it can channel love at times. And that was certainly the case with the, with the prophets of Israel. Their anger often channeled love, as did Jesus' anger often channeled love. So, um, the Spirit also speaks in um, our own language. That's like the message of the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit comes on the church and they're all babbling in different languages, but they're speaking languages that people throughout the Roman Empire understand. It's, it's like a prophetic sign that the Spirit wants to speak in everyone's language. So when Corey like took the wraps off, which he wasn't planning on doing, he was actually speaking his grandpa's language. 
um, you know, talking a little bit more with uh, Corey about Grandpa. His grandpa, you, I guess you could characterize him as irascible. He was, you know, he, he, was, he was prone to anger. He could, when he really cared about something, he would give an outburst. And everyone knew that about Grandpa. And, and um, I think um, his grandpa was able to hear Corey because Corey was speaking in his grandpa's language. Um, and then Corey called his grandpa as a good grandson to apologize for raising his voice. And I, I'm picturing it with Corey that inside his head his voice was louder than actually coming out. I, I don't know. I, I think his apology was like a relational apology more than a, what I have done is sinned against you, Grandpa. Um, because what Corey was doing was, in a sense, he was making a move toward his grandpa to um, recognize his grandfather's dignity as his grandpa and as someone who is made in the image of God. And so I see Corey as like he planted the seed with anger, he watered it with humility, and it grew in grandpa's heart. Um, and it was, a, it was a beautiful thing. Now, the, uh, it's one, one interaction in one family. There are many different ways that we have interactions with our family members. That's not like the model for all interactions with family when we have disagreements. But um, I think another key thing about Corey's interaction was that it set a healthy boundary. And this is a really important point in her chapter. Um, it was his way of saying, you know, I'm not down with this, Grandpa. Uh, don't serve it up to me and expect me to just roll with it. He was setting a, a boundary, and isn't it interesting that his grandpa actually respected the brown boundary, like it actually was a boundary that worked. Uh, Brene Brown says, maintaining the courage to stand alone when necessary in the midst of family or community or angry strangers feels like an untamed wilderness. That's, you know, Corey mentioned the fear that he, he was experiencing. That's the fear that we have in an untamed wilderness. And I think we can probably all identify with that fear in different ways, in different situations. So chapter four of Brene Brown's book is the first of four practices that um, being in the wilderness gives us the courage to implement. Um, and that chapter is titled, People Are Hard to Hate Close Up, Move In. People are hard to hate close up, move in. So thing one, the importance of setting good boundaries. You'd think with a chapter title like that, it would all be about, you know, go, go to grandpa and connect with grandpa and all that. But she stresses first and foremost the importance of setting good boundaries because moving in doesn't mean get close to those who are violating your boundaries but it means you can move in if you are willing to set boundaries with people um, first a, a longish uh, preface uh, on this point you know as as a majority person it's really important for me to understand and i'm speaking to my white peeps right now especially um, it's our job to have the standalone conversations with our grandpas. It's not minority people's job to have the standalone conversations with our grandpas. Um, minority people have to deal with this BS all the time. <laughs> and it's up to the rest of us 
to have these standalone conversations. Um, you know, we're a little frosty right now, if you haven't noticed, um, in terms of the color distribution of our congregation. I'd estimate we're probably about 10% people of color. You know, for a person of color, um, it's not about a majority person being safe because they have enlightened views of things, right? So um, when I gave a you know, academic paper to the theological society of my former denomination, it was titled A Letter to My Friends. Um, at lunch, a prominent board member says to me, I'm afraid, Ken, that our denomination is on the wrong side of history on this one. He was like signaling, like I'm, I get where you're going, and I, I think you're actually on the right side of history on this one, and talking about his daughter, and you know, it's like, he's trying to make a move towards me. A year later, he supported the denomination, insisting that I fire Emily. So I'm thinking like a lot of good his enlightened awareness did for me, right? So it's, it's not our views about things or, you know, what we're pasting, posting on Facebook that really matters. It's what we do in our own social networks where we have influence in our families that really counts to minority people. And it's what counted to Jesus, you know, like Jesus. Um, and I, I don't read this saying that I'm going to recite in a minute as Jesus in his like tough you know hard talking uh, mode I hear it Jesus talking to his friends in his emotionally vulnerable space l l try to listen to it, these words in through that lens if you guys are ashamed of me with your father and mother and brothers and sisters, I will be ashamed of you before my heavenly father. That, that's Jesus having this experience of what it means to have friends who are with you is like if they're not with you when they're with their families and their peeps, if they're not willing to pay any social cost for being connected to you, well then what does it mean for them to be with you and he's just like saying it out straight from that place because he knew how much pressure they were under not to acknowledge their connection to him as things got really tense as the ministry of Jesus was unfolding as we read about it in the gospels so Brown actually says that people who are good at moving in are also good at setting boundaries like that the research she says is the better you are at setting boundaries the people with people the better you'll be at being empathetic with them the better you are at setting boundaries with others the more you'll allow your heart to have like its natural state which is empathy with others like Oh, what they're going through is something I could be going through. I get it. I, have, I feel a sense of connection. Now, my imprint pastor in, in Detroit was Dick Bieber, and he used to say, thick skin, tender heart, that's what we need. A thick skin 
and a tender heart. So thick skin means two things. First, it means we're not so sensitive that our feelings get hurt and we run away from disagreements. So we can, we can have conversations with people who see things very differently from us and we're not like easily offended in those conversations. But it also means that we're able to lay out our non-negotiables when we have non-negotiables. So the skin is literally a boundary of last resort, right? Um, so we disagree about all sorts of things. We have our differing views. I'll try to hear you as I would want to be heard by you and not working, you know, while you're talking, working in my head, the rebuttal to what you're saying. I've just gotten the gist, you know, as I'm half listening to you and the other half of my brain is working on the rebuttal. We all know what that dynamic's like. We want to move in toward people, um, but we also uh, need to be able to set boundaries. And all of it is part of moving in. Um, so thick skin allows us to have a tender heart. Thing two uh, that Brene Brown um, brings up is draw the boundary with others at dehumanizing words and behavior. Like that's the place to be drawing our boundaries. Not disagreement about any manner of issues and, and whatnot. That we practice our love your neighbor as yourself skills and empathy and listen to others as you would want to be listened to yourself, all that. But draw the boundary at dehumanizing words and behavior. Brown cites a book. I, I got the book. I started reading it. I think there's a TED Talk by the author of this book. Uh, it's probably, I'm guessing that's 18 minutes. But uh, the author is David Livingston Smith. And the book is uh, Less Than Human. Why We Demean, Enslave, and Exterminate Others. And, you know, that... Catch that subtitle. That's another really good subtitle. Um, enslave and exterminate others. I mean, those, that's, that's horrible stuff. But these horrors grow out of the soil of something we often tolerate, which is demeaning others, failing to respect their human dignity. So at the time the Bible was written, the Jews had experienced enslavement and extermination at the hands of the Babylonian um, armies. It, it, was, it was brutal. It was awful. And that was the period in Israel's history when the um, stories of the Bible uh, came together and it actually came together in a sacred text. It was, it was relatively late in Israel's history, like, you know, 500 B.C. or so, between uh, 500 and 600 B.C., um, and those sacred texts that were uh, brought together at that period in their history, referring to things earlier in their history, um, offered a real gift to humanity that I think is just is prophetic and powerful uh, so many years later. And it was their understanding of the um, essential dignity of human beings as in the image of God was the language of that time. It, common in the surrounding um, cultures uh, uh, for the worship of those surrounding cultures that Israel was um, um, 
embedded in for priests to bear the image of their god whichever god it was into the temple of the god so that was the priest's job is to carry the image often on a stick or a pole into the temple and they were regarded as image bearers this is why it was such a huge sacrilege for the romans to bring their eagle image into the jewish temple um, and the reason the jews were banned from using graved images in their worship was not because images per se were bad, but it, be, it was because the Jews believed that human beings are the image of God. And so human beings in the temple are the image. And if the temple is, signifies the whole earth, the whole earth is his temple, the psalm says, then we human beings are the priests of creation and we carry in our bodies the image of God. We are bearing the image of God into the temple which is the whole earth. That's a, that's a powerful vision of what it means to be a human being. And the implications of that have, have taken millennia to unfold that every human being, regardless of their physical, intellectual, spiritual, or moral condition, carries the image of God. No one of us has more of the image of God than the other. We all bear the image of God. So that this understanding of the human is like the seed in the Bible behind like every reform uh, movement that came out of this this understanding it's like the seed of the kingdom of God is buried in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible in the image of God God made them and this is the revelation that's fueling the work of the spirit to like extend the circle of compassion my atheist friend uh, Carl Safina talks about history is all about like extending the circle of compassion wider and wider and love and equality to everyone so yeah you know when when the president of the united states alluded to colin kaepernick and said someone should fire those sons of and then he used the word that refers to a female dog and the crowd went wild like that was more than just like politics happening that was the demonic power of dehumanization being conjured up. And that is what leads unchecked to enslavement and extermination. So this, this is why this is such a, a big deal. Calling undocumented workers illegal aliens. The word aliens is dehumanizing. Aliens are creatures from another planet not humans. Uh, Brown is, is good. She's an equal opportunity offender. And so she includes liberal examples of this. Calling people monsters is to truck in this. Um, Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables was absolutely not a shining moment. And, um, you know, the thing is, you know, like we're, we're people, right? We're, we're, just, we're just human beings. We say ignorant, unfair, unjustified, wrong-headed, mean-spirited things to other people, someone, sometimes the people we're closest to. And we, we just do that. 
It's part of our human, what's the word, smallness or limitations or whatever. It's just people being people. But dehumanization is like another order altogether. That's the place for setting boundaries. So in, in this chapter, uh, Brown says, successful dehumanizing creates moral exclusion. Groups targeted be, uh, based on their identity, gender, ideology, skin color, ethnicity, religion, age, are depicted as less than or criminal or even evil. The targeted group eventually falls out of the scope of who is naturally protected by our moral code. This is moral exclusion and dehumanization is at its core. So um, my gammy, we called her gammy, my grandmother on my mother's side, uh, she was born 13 years after the end of the Civil War. My grandmother was born 13 years after the end of the Civil War. She lived through the Jim Crow laws. She lived in Dearborn, where there was a Jim Crow regime in Dearborn. Um, black people were not literally allowed in the city parks in Dearborn while my grandma lived there. My mom was born in 1925. After, in 1924, 30,000 Klansmen marched in Washington, D.C. to the acclaim of the Washington Post. The greatest demonstration ever seen, the Post wrote. This was after the president, whose last name was Wilson, had shown birth of a nation, which is like a Klan movie, glorifying the Klan. It's like by showing that movie, he was like sending a signal to the Klansmen, come, and they came, 30,000. It was aptly named the White House. This, this is extreme dehumanization at the highest level of our society. So, of course, we're still dealing with racism. Of course, we're still dealing with anti-Semitism. Of course, we're still dealing with white supremacy. You know, we, we, we never made amends. We, we never gave back what we stole um, from the slaves whose labor uh, fueled our early wealth. Um, ending slavery was like, you know, a patient having cancer and we, we cut off the cancerous limb, but there was no like follow-up chemotherapy. Um, and cancer is a metastatic disease. So this is what our nation's wrestling with. You know, the fact that like Black Lives Matter is regarded as controversial. I mean, that just shows how, how far we have to go, doesn't it? Black Lives Matter is like a simple assertion of the full dignity of African Americans in a society in which that dignity is inarguably, historically, um, there's just no debate about it, under assault. So, thing one, set good boundaries. Thing two, draw a firm boundary at dehumanizing words and behavior. Boundaries for ourselves and boundaries that we insist on with others. And you know, this is not, isn't it interesting like how so much of, uh, in 2017, like so much of what we used to think of as politics or public policy or things like that, which is, was e easy to regard on the periphery of our lives is our actual social experience of that that it's actually in our everyday and it's like a factor in our family relationships and this is what 
patients are talking to their therapists about and this is stuff we talked about with our friends and like if I had asked for a show of hands about how many people could identify with Corey's st story that there was like some version of that in your family with different you know different issues you'd be like the, the, the hands would shoot up this is this is not politics in, in the way we've thought about politics this is like our lives and our families and our relationships and our social networks. It's, it's just like the stuff of our lives. And that's why I thought Corey's interaction with the grandpa was such a blessed moment and uh, instructive. So we wind up here. Um, you know, from last week, um, we talked about Jesus in the wilderness and, and Emily's on next week and she's got like the best topic of the whole series. So um, just read the... Uh, chapter title of chapter five in Brene Brown's book and you'll, you'll get the feel for it lucky Emily um, so Jesus in the wilderness was um, learning to discern the voice of accusation personified in that Satan the, the the name for accusation personified in the in the Bible and then the voice of the spirit the consoler defender against accusation so that was the wilderness experience of Jesus that gave him like the inner strength to uh, stand alone, which Brene Brown says is the key thing for true belonging in communities that we have to work out. So um, here's something you might not know about Corey. Corey is a charismatic Christian. Corey is a Pentecostal Christian. I bet Corey could tell you hair-raising stories of Pentecostal experiences that he's had in Pentecostal churches. And I, I know a bit about Corey's background. And Corey didn't just have like evangelical box church charismatic experience, you know, like the kind of thing you see on the Christian uh, worship channels and stuff where it's a bunch of white people singing these nice songs and it's, you know, it looks like it could be like a crowd in, uh, in I don't know, the Tonight Show or something like that. No, this is like intense charismatic going for the Holy Spirit kind of experience that Corey um, found himself in and, and it really experienced God in a very significant way within that uh, context. Um, so that means that Corey has been interested in being connected with God um, through the Holy Spirit. Like there's a lot of Christians that are kind of nervous about the Holy Spirit. We don't, don't talk about it much and we're like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm European in my ethnic heritage and all that stuff. And don't worry, I'm not going to get you to try not to be European and all that sort of thing. But, um, but that means that um, the, 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 um, the essence or the treasure that Corey uh, discovered in that realm of the Christian landscape is the same thing that Jesus experienced when he was baptized before he was led into the wilderness. You know, this is my, this is my child. I love him. I like him. We're going to do things together. Um, now, here's the deal. In the language of scripture, dehumanization, I think, is the work of Satan among humans. That's the work of Satan among humans. Now, for you philosophy people, I have no idea ontologically 
what the Bible means by Satan. That is, I don't know if this is an actual being, like I'm an actual being, or whether Satan represents like what happens between and among humanity at kind of a supra-human level that it, they all participate in it, but then they're affected by it. Uh, you know, you can have many different explanations from that perspective about Satan, and I think they're all more or less irrelevant. But in the language of Scripture, dehumanization is the work of Satan among humans. So what that means is, and I'm, I'm speaking as a white person to white people, if we well-meaning white people think that we can rid ourselves, or straight people, or whatever it is in relation to people who are suffering under this stuff, if we well-meaning people think we can rid ourselves of dehumanization with what our people of color friends call disparagingly white liberal guilt, we all know it. White liberal guilt. Like, you hear the lecture, you hear the statistics, and oh, I feel bad. And you do absolutely nothing in response to it because guilt is not a very empowering um, emotion. If we think that white liberal guilt, guilt will get us where we need to go, we're utterly fooling ourselves. Um, we might as well try to fly by flapping our arms as resist dehumanization with white liberal guilt. It's been tried, right? It has not been effective. Um, because of the wilderness. That's, that's shows us the powers at work. And the conflict is between the Holy Spirit and what Jesus referred to as the Satan. This dehumanizing power at work in humanity. And so to resist that, we need something very powerful and that what is what in the Christian tradition is regarded as the Holy Spirit. So for our, um, our uh, time of reflection, I thought, as I heard that first song, have we sung that first song before? Is that, was that a first time? No, we sung it before. Okay. I'm sure I knew that, but it sounded fresh to me. Um, that is an example of, uh, that's an invocation of the Holy Spirit song. Where's the, um, does anyone have the words to that? Uh, could I just borrow them here for a moment? So what, what I'm going to suggest is that we sing this song, but with um, intention. You know, the kids are all off and everything, and we've kind of settled ourselves down. Um, the first, if you take out the, your lyrics here, that first um, stanza, I guess it's called, Awaken my soul, come awake to hunger, to seek, to thirst. Awaken first love, come awake and do as you did, uh, did it first. Um, in, in, as we sing this, pay attention to the fact that you're singing this to your soul. The psalm, the psalmist is singing to himself, to herself, singing to their soul. And it's a way of like centering yourself and focusing yourself. And you're saying like, awaken my soul. Like I'm here to pay attention and to focus. And then the second stanza is, spirit of the living God, come fall afresh on me. That's like, that's an invocation of the Holy Spirit. Invocation means like, um, it's like, hello, come over here. That's invocation. It's like, come here. Let your presence enter my sphere of awareness, so to speak. And so for that second verse, I just encourage us.
be intentional about what we're doing and to sing it with that understanding. This, it's a real thing to invoke the Holy Spirit. And then the, the second, um, the third verse is kind of like, we're doing that in community. Come and fill this place with, with the Spirit. This is just not a me and God kind of thing. This is something that God does with communities of people. So um, go ahead and lead us, and then, and then uh, Caroline will uh, lead us from, from there after we're done with this.